Last two verses of Luke chapter 11. If you remember, it was that great dinner party that Jesus had at the home of the Pharisee. Where it really would have been wonderful to be at that, to experience Jesus confronting them. But verse 53, it says, And as he said these things to them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to assail him vehemently and to cross-examine him about many things, lying in wait for him and seeking to catch him in something that he might say that they might accuse him. This is a season of rising hostility between Jesus and the religious leaders. So even though the conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders was becoming more intense, look at how the common people received Jesus. Verse 1, In the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together so that they trampled one another, he began to say to his disciples, first of all, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light, and whatever you have spoken in the ear, uh, in the inner rooms, will be proclaimed on the housetops. The first thing you have to understand about this brief little section is verse 1 begins by telling us, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered. Picture in your mind a vast crowd surrounding Jesus. The implication in the original Greek is something like this. Thousands upon thousands. Literally, ten thousands upon ten thousands. So I'm not going to say that there were 20,000 people there, but there were thousands pressing in around Jesus. Now, you can just imagine what a rush this was for the disciples. There are the disciples, and they more than ever have the sense, we are on the winning team. This is it. This is everything we wanted, everything we hoped for. This is the kind of crowd reaction and messianic fervor that can carry Jesus right into that high status of kingship that we've always longed for. This is it. We're finally coming into his own. That crowd is so big that verse 1 says that they trampled one another. And in the midst of that, please notice what it says. In verse 1, it says, he began to say to his disciples. In other words, this little teaching that Jesus gave was not primarily to the multitude. Now, I don't think he whispered it to his disciples, but he directed it to his disciples. I don't have any doubt that people standing around heard what he said to his disciples, but he's not teaching the multitude. He's instructing the disciples. And what does he say? He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. At this moment of what seemed to be their tremendous success, he warns them about the danger of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is like leaven, and that's what Jesus says. And you know what leaven is, don't you? Leaven is yeast. It's that material. Isn't it like a mold or a fungus or something like that? Something that you put within bread dough to make it rise and swell up. Well, hypocrisy is like leaven in the sense that it only takes a little bit of it to affect an entire mass. I remember when I was a kid, my mom used to bake bread. And she wouldn't do it all the time, but she would do it, you know, fairly regularly. She'd bake bread, and she had this one certain bowl that the dough would always go in. 
And she just put the littlest little pinch of yeast in, and that whole lump of dough would swell up so big. Now, the reason why I remember the lump of dough swelling up so big was because at a certain time in the process, she wanted one of the kids to come, and we got to punch the dough. And that was like a big deal, you know. You know oh, good, Mom, can I punch the dough? Well, you did it because it swelled up in this way. Again, I, I, this was especially important for the disciples to hear because of their time of tremendous popularity. They had to be reminded of the danger of hypocrisy. I would say this, that oftentimes the danger of hypocrisy, the temptation to hypocrisy, is the greatest for those who enjoy some measure of popularity or success. So, what did Jesus say? Well, this was sort of his antidote. Look at the verse 2. There's nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. It's been said, and to tell you the truth, I I don't know if it's strictly a biblically accurate statement, so I don't want you to take it too literally, because I'm not going to give you a Bible verse here. I'm going to give you a little proverb, not from the book of Proverbs, but just, well, I'll just say it. Secret sin on earth is open scandal in heaven. I mean, it's known. Heaven knows. You may keep it very well hidden. Your hypocrisy may be known only to you and God. Nobody else knows how terrible, but God knows. And it's known in heaven. And this is what Jesus wanted the apostles to remember. He wanted them to remember that even though you keep it secret here, there will come the day when it will be revealed because the truth must be shown. The hypocrite wears an actor's mask But one day, in some fashion, that mask will be ripped off and everybody will see the hypocrite for what they actually are. Now, in light of that, Jesus continues, starting now at verse 4. And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body. And after after that, have no more they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has power to cast into hell Yes, I say to you, fear him. I find this interesting in verse 4. Jesus says, and I say to you, friends. Okay, verses 2 and 3, he was addressing the disciples. It clearly says that. Who is he addressing starting at verse 4? Well, I think, again, he's speaking to the disciples. But again, he doesn't mind if the whole multitude hears. So maybe he's speaking to the apostles, but speaking to them in sort of a loud voice. And what does he say? He says, verse 4, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. Jesus spoke to them very upfront, very directly about their martyrdom. Now, please remember this. This is the time when they have thousands upon thousands of supporters and people around them who love them. And Jesus says, now I want to warn you about the danger of martyrdom. You're flying high now. Seems like everybody loves you. But let me warn you about trouble coming. And when you think about it, when Jesus spoke those words, he says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. When he looked around and made eye contact with each one of his 12 disciples, he knew that every one of those 12 disciples, except for Judas who committed suicide, and except for John who they tried to kill but couldn't, 10 of those 12 would die martyrs' deaths. Now, that's a heavy thing to look a man whom you know is going to be a martyr and say, I want you to prepare for it. 
I want you to get ready for it. I want you to have that mentality right now. And this is the mentality you have to have. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body. Now, those are words that are very easy to say. It just kind of rolls off the tongue. Ladies and gentlemen, that's a very difficult thing. Because killing the body is a very terrible thing. It's no light thing. And those people who were persecuted were just astounded at what they endured. But Jesus recognizes that even though they're popular among the multitudes at the moment, he just faced this incredible opposition that's spoken of at the end of chapter 11. And I think as much as anything, I don't think that Jesus was saying this to himself, but I do think he was saying it about himself. I think Jesus had come to that place of resolution where he says, I am not afraid of you who want to kill my body. I am not. That doesn't fill me with fear. It doesn't fill me with wonderful anticipation. I'm going to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane that if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. But there was no other way. And so Jesus accepted his fate. And when he looked at Pilate and looked him in the eye, you could tell that there would be an exchange between them and say, Pilate, I'm not afraid of you, but you're afraid of me, aren't you? Because Jesus wasn't afraid of those who would kill the body. Why? Because verse 4, he says, after that, excuse me, after that have no more that they can do. All persecutors can do is kill the body. And I don't want to act for a moment that that's a light thing. It's a heavy thing. It's a terrible thing. But God has the ultimate power over life and death for the believer. Do you believe that? Do you believe that ultimately your life is in God's hands and you cannot be taken from this earth until your life has been lived the exact number of days that God has for you? Until that time, you're invulnerable. And when that time comes, there's nothing that can do to keep you on this earth. God is in control of such things. But therefore, keeping that perspective, perspective, it will help us to not be so afraid of our persecutors, but instead to have a healthy respect of God that makes us more concerned with obeying God than obeying any man. Now, he says something very interesting there in verse 5. He says, fear him who, after he is killed, has power to cast into hell. Who is he speaking of? I don't believe he's speaking of Satan, actually. No. Because does Satan have the power to cast my soul into hell? I think who he's speaking is fear the Lord, honor the Lord. But please notice this. He says to cast the soul into hell. The word translated hell there in verse 5 is Gehenna. And it's derived from a geographical place in Jerusalem known as the Valley of Hinnom, which was located on the south and west sides of Jerusalem. It still is located there. In the Old Testament, it was a place of child sacrifice to the pagan god Molech. And then later on, the reforming king Josiah said, no more is Molech going to be worshipped in the valley of Hinnom. We're going to destroy those idolatrous places. And to commemorate what the place was morally and spiritually, he made it a garbage dump. That's what it became. But the smoldering fires and the stench that came from the garbage dump in the valley of Hinnom made it a fit representation of what hell would be like. And so they used it as a figure of speech. This connects 
with what we consider later on in the Bible to be the lake of fire, especially if it's mentioned in Revelation chapter 19 and Revelation chapter 20. But I just want to make you aware, Jesus spoke of this as a real place. It's real. And if people don't want to dwell on the idea of hell, I don't blame them. It's not a pleasant thing to think about. It's not a pleasant thing to contemplate. But I'll just say this and then move on because we've got a lot to consider tonight. Nobody spoke about hell in the Bible more than Jesus Christ. This is, I believe, because he's the only one given to us in the Bible who actually saw it and knew what it would be like. And therefore, Jesus spoke more and warned more about hell than any other biblical figure. That's why he says, verse 5, Yes, I say to you, fear him. And ladies and gentlemen, I'm just very happy to tell you tonight that through the history of the church, there have been thousands upon thousands of amazingly godly examples of people who have held their courage and to the bitter end they have stood and they have endured the most severe and serious persecutions. There have been people who bravely stood in the arena floor while literally lions pounced upon them or gladiators cut their heads off. There were Christians who stood courageously while literally, and I don't say this to gross you out, but just to be very straightforward with you, while the madman Caesar Nero coated their bodies with tar and lit them alive as torches for his garden. There are the stories of Christians who when they would come to the stake that they would be burned at, would go up to it and kiss it and embrace it as the instrument that would bring them to heaven. There are the Christians that when they would come to the stake and they would be chained to the stake. I just read such a story today. A a, a Christian woman was chained to the stake with a chain around her neck holding her when she was going to be burned. And you know what she said? She said, Oh, what a pleasant scarf God has given me. Story after story of the remarkable, could I just say, seemingly otherworldly courage in the face of suffering and death. Now, I know about you, but I read that, and if I'm honest with myself, I say, no way, I couldn't do it, it's beyond me. But this is what I would hope. I would hope that in the moment of that extremity, God would show to me the same grace that he showed to them. And this is the beautiful story of God's work throughout the centuries. The the, the church has a glorious, has an illustrious history of the persecuted martyrs who have laid down their life in bravery and nobility. Verse 6. Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins? And not one of them is forgotten before God. But the very hairs of your head are numbered by, are, are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Isn't it beautiful? God here is drawing the argument. Here, Jesus here is drawing the argument saying, not one of these sparrows is forgotten before God. If God remembers the sparrows, he's not going to forget you. So don't lose heart. Oh, there's that persecuted one enduring some terrible suffering in a prison. 
There's the persecuted one. Right now we should say, here's the world's attention, or at least some on this poor uh, pastor who's an American of Iranian descent, and he's in prison, in Iranian prison right now. And I hope you've signed the petitions for him. I hope you've done whatever small thing you can do to make your voice known for him. I know that I have. And this man is in a terrible situation, in some unknown location, in some rotten situation. And you know what? God has not forgotten him. God won't forget the sparrow. He won't forget this man who so bravely suffers for him. So he says, so don't lose heart. Jesus assures the believer that God values you. You're precious in his sight. Matter of fact, he makes this analogy. You saw it in verse 7, that the very hairs of your head are all numbered. God knows. You know, it's been said that a redhead has about 90,000 hairs on their head. A dark-haired person has about 120,000 hairs. And a blonde person has about 145,000 hairs on their head. I don't know how this counts when people get their hair colored. I can't figure that out. (laughs) However many the exact number of hairs on your head is, God knows. He knows. Now, if God knows such trivial, and might I say, unsubstantial information about us, don't you think he knows and cares about the things that really matter? He does know the important things, and he cares. Because why? Verse 7, you are of more value than many sparrows. The person who is persecuted or suffering, it's so easy for them to feel forgotten, but it's so precious for them to realize before God, I have not forgotten you, God says. I know that I feel, or you feel that I'm distant. I know that you wonder whether or not I'm really there, but I want you to remember, I have not forgotten you. A loving God values each one. Now, before we go on, I need to make one more point from verses 4 and 5. Matthew chapter 10, verse 29, tells us that you could buy two sparrows for one copper coin. Now, here in Luke chapter 12, we learn that for two copper coins, you could buy five sparrows. Do you get the math there? There is a quantity discount for buying sparrows. (laughs) You know, one costs 0.5 of a copper coin and the other 0.4 of a copper coin. And we think this is the entire rationale behind Costco and and, and large, you know, if they had Costco back, you'd go back there and you'd buy a whole crate of sparrows for I don't know how many copper coins. But there they are. Five sparrows cost two copper coins, and two sparrows cost one. That's the math. I thought somebody in here would be interested in that. (laughs) Is there a single person here who found that interesting? Okay, good. At least one. That's all. I just needed one. Just one. Verse 8. Also I say to you, again, Focus in. Jesus is speaking to his disciples about the threat of persecution and the attitude they're supposed to have. And his words right here are sobering. Verse 8. Also I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him the Son of Man will also confess before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. 
Listen, those words, will not be forgiven, should make you wake up right now. What is he talking about? Jesus is talking about a sin that will not be forgiven? I hope this gets your attention. Well, go back to verse 8. The first thing he says is, whoever confesses me before men, him the Son of Man will also confess before the angels of God. Jesus here comforts the faithful, explaining that the suffering Christian will be given the reward of allegiance and honor before the very throne of God. When he says there, before the angels of heaven, the idea is he's drawing on the Old Testament illusion that angels surround the throne of God. So it'll be in the very presence of God that Jesus says, Father, this one belongs to me. This one's mine. I'm not ashamed to put my arm around this sister, around this brother. They belong to me. He's with me, Dad. Now, doesn't that just humble you to think that Jesus might say that of you? That Jesus would not be ashamed to call me or to call you his brother. And say, yes, Lord, this is it. How wonderful it is. I have confessed you before men. Now you said that you will confess me before my Father in heaven. You know, among the early Christians, there were a certain class of people who were highly honored. Now, of course, martyrs were honored. But the problem with martyrs, and I don't mean to be flippant about this, the martyrs were dead. And they honored their memory and they honored what they did. Oh, yes, the early church honored its martyrs. But then there were a second category of people. They honored their confessors. And who is a confessor? A confessor in the early church was somebody who had endured some kind of great punishment and had not denied Jesus Christ, yet had survived. They weren't martyrs because they were still alive. But they had had a limb chopped off. They had been mutilated. They had been branded. They had been, you know, uh, their health had been broken because of the pitiful conditions, on and on. And these people were so honored in the early church People who confessed Jesus before men and would not back down from it at all. I read the stories and hear the heritage of this. And it makes me want to be a confessor. It makes me want to be able to say, Jesus, I will witness to you this way. That I'll confess you and never back down before men to say that anybody would say that I would deny you. Because look at the flip side of it in verse 9. This is even almost more sobering. He who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Even as there was an honorable reward for those who were faithful. For those who are not. Jesus says, I'll deny you. Can you imagine what it would be like to stand before God on that day of judgment? And have Jesus look over to you and say, I never knew him. Now, if you really want to get heavy with this, and I suppose we have to. Notice in verse 9, Jesus did not say, denies me in their heart. He did not say, denies me in their mind. He said something that's actually far more difficult. Denies me before men. Because maybe we would find refuge in saying, well, yes, I denied you before men, but I never denied you in my heart, Lord. She said, no, this is the critical thing, whether or not you will deny me before men. There is a real and an important place 
for a public declaration of who we are in Jesus Christ and our allegiance to Him. And I don't know if you've ever had this opportunity. I suppose you have had the opportunity. I wonder if you've ever taken it. If not, I pray that you would seriously ask God in the secret place of your heart, Lord, would you give me some opportunity to confess you before men? I want to know that you helping me, I can do this. I want to know that I won't fail in the challenge. And to be able to, in some situation, be able to say, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. You guys are mocking Christians. Okay, well then fine, laugh at me too. You guys are hating on Christians. Well, then hate on me too, because I'm numbered among them. Instead of being like turtles that's so bad, want to go back into a shell and protect ourselves, just to say, if you're heaping scorn and abuse, put it on me as well. We should pray that we have such an opportunity. And for many of us, this is the most difficult of all. But if we're going to be honest, why is it so difficult sometimes? To confess Jesus in front of others. Can't you say very simply that it's a combination of pride and the fear of man before the fear of God? We just don't fear the Lord the way that we should. Jesus here clearly calls his listeners to a choice. You're either going to be with me or against me. You're either going to confess me or deny me. Do you see how Jesus calls us very startlingly for a choice? And the choice is going to be connected to your eternal destiny. But notice, it's not like Jesus is taking this personal. Verse 40, excuse me, verse 10. He says, if you speak a word against the Son of Man, that can be forgiven. That, that may refer to a moment of weakness, especially in a public testimony. That could be forgiven. But listen, here's the contrast. The person, verse 10, who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit. That, ladies and gentlemen, is a settled rejection of God's truth to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. That will not be forgiven. You see, notice, Jesus said this when it seemed like he was more popular than ever. Thousands were pressing in upon him. But Jesus knew that being regarded as popular wasn't really the same as truly being confessed and trusted. So he calls his hearers to make a choice, and he warns them against making the wrong choice. Don't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. What is the Holy Spirit's mission? Well, the Holy Spirit has many different jobs that he does in the world. But the most primary thing that he does, in John chapter 15, verse 26, Jesus said of the Holy Spirit, He will testify of me. When you reject what the Holy Spirit tells you about Jesus, it's like spitting in the Holy Spirit's face. And if you take that as a settled rejection of Jesus, there's no forgiveness. Friends, the eternal consequences of this sin should force us to regard it seriously. Look at it in verse 10. It will not be forgiven. There may be some people here tonight and you honestly wonder, have I blasphemed the Holy Spirit? Have I committed the unpardonable sin? Really, there's a very easy way to tell whether or not you have. 
put your trust in Jesus right here, right now, then you'll know that you haven't blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Because if the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the settled rejection of Jesus, all you have to do is unsettle your rejection of Jesus and accept him. And then it's over. Then you know you haven't committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Ladies and gentlemen, if you stayed in that condition, that would be a very dangerous place to be. Let me tell you a story from the life of Charles Spurgeon. One time a man came to Spurgeon very concerned over the idea that he had committed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And he goes, I'm going to hell. I know I'm going to hell. I blasphemed the Holy Spirit. And Spurgeon thought the guy was being a little nuts about it. And so he said, okay, let's just say you're going to hell. What would you do in hell? And the guy's thinking, and he goes, well, I think I'd try to start a prayer meeting. And Spurgeon just laughed. And he goes, brother, you have not committed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The guy who wants to start a prayer meeting in hell has not blasphemed the Holy Spirit. But listen, a continued rejection of Jesus makes us more hardened against him. And it puts us on the path to a settled rejection of Jesus. And there are some people who either as a joke or a dare intentionally say those words, I blaspheme the Holy Spirit. They think it's a light thing, a thing to joke about. But listen, I don't even care. I don't care if you shouted at the top of your lungs, I blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ can still redeem you if you'll humble yourself and repent of it. If you'll come to him in a gracious renewal and surrender before him, Jesus Christ will come and he'll forgive you this sin because you've just unsettled your rejection of him. But a settled rejection of Jesus? Ladies and gentlemen, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven, not because it's a sin too big for God to forgive. Rather, it'll never be forgiven because it's an attitude of heart that rejects God's forgiveness. And if you reject it, you will never have it. Now, verse 11. Now, when they bring you to the synagogues and magistrates and authorities, do not worry about how or what you shall answer or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. How about this? You're going to be persecuted, and they're going to drag you before the magistrates and the synagogues. By the way, it's very interesting. Jesus told them right there that they would face persecution from government officials, that's magistrates, and from religious officials. That's the sin of You guys are going to get double-barreled persecution. Congratulations. Isn't that funny? Jesus never said, if they drag you. He said, when they drag you. You should just expect it. And absolutely, it was proven true in the lives of these disciples. But what did he say to them in verse 11? He said, do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say. Jesus' disciples could have perfect peace and trust in God in those moments of great testing knowing that the Spirit would speak through them even if they were unprepared. Do you know what early Christians talked about in reference to this? When they would appear before magistrates or before religious officials in the form of persecution, early Christians were often very fearful. Now, what were they fearful of? Death? Humiliation? Usually not. You know what they were usually afraid of? Blowing it. They were afraid of having an opportunity to speak a word for Jesus Christ and fumbling it. And Jesus says, no, put your trust in me and it won't happen. The Holy Spirit will give you eloquence at that very moment. 
I read the story just today, actually, about a woman named Alice Driver. She was a martyr, and she was a martyr in the Marian persecutions in the English times. But before they sent her to the stake to be burned, she was interviewed by learned scholars and doctors. And you know what? This simple, untaught woman, untaught in any of the formal schools of the day, she was very well taught in the Bible, she totally flummoxed and humbled all of the doctors, all of the PhDs that she spoke to at that moment. This is what it says here from John Trapp. He says, at her examination, she put all the doctors to silence so they had not a word to say but looked upon one another. Then she said, have you no more to say? God be honored. You're not able to resist the spirit of God in me, a poor woman. So the chancellor condemned her and she returned to the prison as joyful as the bird of the day. And then she was burned at the stake the next day. Because the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. This would give them confidence in the moving and the presence of the Spirit of God. By the way, it's no justification for an unprepared preacher. Now listen, I'll say, sometimes God will use an unprepared preacher. You know, the press of life, things come on, and there's been times where you just come and you know, oh, Lord, please use it, and God does. But it's never a justification for it, never. The great things that God might do in extremities. All right, let's just consider a few more verses, verses 13, 14, and 15, because here Jesus kind of talks about another sort of thing here. He's moving from another subject, and we'll at least introduce it with our last few verses. Verse 13. Then one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said, Man, who made me a judge or an arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Now this begins a long discussion that Jesus will get into about covetousness and the place of material things. But notice how it began. A man cried out to Jesus from the crowd, verse 13, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, according to the law of the day, the elder brother would receive two-thirds of the inheritance and the younger brother would receive one-third. But this is what I want you to notice. The man did not ask Jesus to listen to both sides and then make a judgment. Instead, he wanted Jesus to side with him against his brother. Jesus, I'm in a dispute with my brother. Take my side. That's essentially what he was saying. Tell my brother to divide the inheritance. Now, what did Jesus answer? Verse 14. Man, who made me a judge or an arbiter over you? Don't you find this fascinating? Jesus said, "Don't, don't bug me about this. Wasn't that Jesus was unconcerned about justice, but he was all too aware that the real problem with this man wasn't that he suffered from a lack of justice, but he suffered from too much covetousness. Jesus could see behind his motivation and that his real motivation wasn't justice, but covetousness. And that's what Jesus could observe in the man. Listen, it's possible for us to fight and fight and fight for what's ours by right. And then once we receive it, it does us more harm than good. And so Jesus didn't feel like it was his responsibility to judge every matter that came before him. 
There were just some disputes that Jesus refused to get entangled in. And this is true, that the deceptive nature of the heart is so true that we can even express our covetousness in the terms of a righteous concern for justice. That's why Jesus says in verse 15, take heed and beware of covetousness. He says, did you notice it there in verse 15? One's life does not consist in the abundance of the things which he possesses. Covetousness, materialism, thinking that your life is all about the things that you possess. I am so happy that in our culture, in our community, these are completely irrelevant temptations and sins. And so we'll just skip over this and pick it up in Luke chapter 13 next time. No, really, this hits us, doesn't it? This does. That's why I really want to save this and we'll focus on it the next time we're together. You can read ahead and you'll see that Jesus speaks very pointedly, very passionately about this. But please understand, isn't that a powerful statement? And don't you want God to write that statement upon your heart? One's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Oh, how we need the Lord to impress that upon our heart. You know that one of my favorite commentators is this old guy with a quirky way of phrasing things, John Trapp. So let me close with a quotation from John Trapp. And then I'll explain it to you because it's hard to understand. Covetous men, by gaping after more, lose the pleasure of that they possess. As a dog at his master's table swalloweth the whole meat, he casteth him without any pleasure, gaping still for the next morsel. You ever seen a dog wolf down food? It doesn't seem like they enjoy it at all. They just gobble it up, right? And all they can think about is the next bite. John Trapp said, that's the covetous man or woman right there. You don't even enjoy what God has given you. But all you're thinking about is what? The next bite. And you're wolfing those things down. What a difference. We'll pick that up the next time we're together. There's a lot for us to consider. Father, that's our prayer. That you would guard our hearts against covetousness. We want to agree with this, Lord, to beware. But Lord, um, more than that, we just want to draw on the theme of those first verses and ask you, Lord, to give us hearts and minds that would truly confess you before men. I pray that you'd give us the courage. I pray that you'd give us all just a little bit thicker skins to where we'd realize that if somebody mocked us, if somebody rejected us, if somebody said a hateful word towards us, it's not the end of the world. It could be the beginning of eternal life. And so, Lord, just Put that perspective deep in our hearts. We want to honor you and praise you in Jesus' name.